especially small farmers and especially beginning farmers are really having a very robust conversation about how their practices can not only contribute to the food supply, but also to bringing health and resilience to the land. Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and supported by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. In each episode, we spotlight the numerous efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. In this episode, we explore the world of small-scale farms and beginning farmers. Now, here's your host, Elise Koning. I'm Elise Koning with Hoosier Ag Today, and I'm talking with Liz Brownlee of Hoosier Young Farmers and Nightfall Farm, as well as Ellie Blaine with the Urban Soil Health Program, which is an initiative of the Indiana Association of Soil and Water Conservation Districts. Liz and Ellie, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a total pleasure. Thanks for having us. I'm excited about this conversation because we're going to dive into talking about small farms, people who are getting into farming for the first time. What does that scene look like today? And what are some of the challenges and how does all of this relate to soil health? So I'd like to start with Liz. Liz, will you introduce yourself and tell us about who the who's your young farmers are and what's going on at Nightfall Farm? Oh, for sure. Um, so my name is Liz Brownlee, and I'm a farmer in southeast Indiana. I'm down in Jennings County, and um, my husband and I moved home about 10 years ago to take over a chunk of the family farm. Um, it had been in corn and soybeans for about 40 years, and um, we spent about five years up in Maine and Vermont learning um, on organic farms up that way and sustainable farms. We really wanted to do rotational grazing, and uh, so we brought that knowledge home and turned 50 acres of corn and soybeans into pasture. And so we raised sheep and pigs and turkeys and um, laying hens and meat chickens. Uh, And then we sell all of that, um, the meat and eggs, uh, through our CSA, where people get monthly subscriptions, through farmer's markets, through a couple of independent groceries, and through restaurants. Um, So this will be year 10 of our farm, which means we're almost no longer beginning farmers. Uh, USDA says, Anybody in their first 10 years of their own operation is a beginning farmer. And um, we have learned a ton <laughs> and we're getting a lot better. Um, and we, while we're still small potatoes, um, we um, we have a steady base of customers who keep buying all of our food and we just keep raising as much as we can and and they keep buying it. It's a, it's a pretty sweet deal. Um, and then one of the other hats I wear is as the president of the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition. And so... Um, we are a chapter of the National Young Farmers Coalition, um, and I'll tell you bunches of neat things about them. But essentially, the here in Indiana, the way that plays out is um, uh, basically a focus on connecting and community um, building community with young farmers. So, um, the average person getting into agriculture today. Um, is new to farming and a first generation farmer. So I'm weird that way, right? My parents farmed, <laughs> um, though they stopped farming um, during the farm crisis in the 80s. But most people who are getting into farming are not from farm families and um, and they they need to learn somehow. And so that's really where the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition comes in is we try to connect people with each other, with resources, so they have a sense of community as they're trying out um, a new lifestyle and, and a, a new business. Ellie, what's your background and what's your position? Hi, everyone. 
So my name is Ellie Blaine again, and I'm with the Urban Soil Health Program. We are an initiative of the State Association of Soil and Water Districts. So we are here to really connect soil and water districts with urban and small farm growers um, and our other conservation partners too. So Extension and um, NRCS and federal conservation agencies. Um, And we grew, we were initiated two years ago, um, primarily by NRCS, but also with other local uh, and statewide sources of funding, because there is really this gap, as Liz talked about, both on the sides of growers wanting to access more conservation practices um, and technical expertise to implement on their farms. And also there's a gap with a lot of our conservation professionals across the state that don't have the confidence or the skill set to really meet growers where they are in those operations and uh, be comfortable with diverse uh, farming practices. So we're here to try to bridge those gaps on both sides. Uh, Liz, when you uh, were coming back to the family farm, what was that transition like? You talked about learning um, different practices up in the Northeast and bringing them back to Southern Indiana. How did those practices up there translate to what mm-hmm. your farm was in Southern Indiana? And how was that transition for you oh, and man. your family? <laughs> it was complicated. Um, some of it translated beautifully. And we also knew that some of it just wouldn't translate, right? There are different soils, different climate. You know, our season's about two weeks longer on both ends of the the growing season than up in New England and also a different market. So um, the majority of folks who are getting into farming and who are small farmers are selling direct to consumer. And um, we didn't know if people in Southeast Indiana would be interested in paying a premium price for a premium product, right? So when you raise a chicken on pasture, it tastes totally different than a grocery store chicken. It's really, our chickens, I'm biased, but I think our chickens are pretty darn good. But we have different costs than Tyson or others, right? And so our chicken's more expensive and um, we didn't know if people would pay. And then on top of that, we have really heavy clay soils uh, on my family's farm. Um, it's pretty marginal ground. And we've been working on some really beautiful ground that had been in pasture for 10 or 20 years and had had a lot of chance to heal. And we were coming into ground that had been in soybeans and corn the year before. And so it was a, uh, a lot, <laughs> but we took it really slow. So that first year we raised like, uh, I think it was like 300 meat chickens and four pigs and 45 turkeys. And that was it because it was basically a trial that first year. Would anybody want what we had? And could we do the things we'd learned in the Northeast in Indiana? How would that play out? Um, and we sold out of food. It was great. And, and so we just kept growing each year. And we're continuing to adapt and learn, but a lot of the tools did translate well. And um, and we really found that people were kind of just waiting for us to show up. You know, they said, oh, we've been driving to Cincinnati for our turkey. We've been driving to Indy to get local lamb um, or pasture-raised lamb. And so there was a lot more demand um, than we, more demand than we can meet even now, even though we've grown and grown and grown. But we definitely had to adapt that knowledge to Indiana. And we're still learning. Ellie, you talked about getting some diversity of practices on the ground and helping connect people. How have you worked with different farmers around the state with their soil health practices and getting people started on those small farms? Yeah, so I'm lucky in that I have a team of people that can help be those boots on the ground to really meet farmers and 
understand their operations because there is such a diversity in our state. And that's something that's been so wonderful to see is what a broad spectrum of all sorts of farming operations in terms of scale, what they're growing, um, where they're growing. I don't even know how many buckets to try to fit farmers into because, um, you know, there, there's so much diversity and it's really inspiring. And I'd love for people, more people to get out and really understand what's, what farming looks like and the diversity that is there, both in rural environments and in really densely populated city centers. Because I think we sometimes mistakenly have an urban-rural divide, and there's a lot of diverse small-scale operations in a more quote-unquote rural environment that get overlooked. So yeah, our team of people are out there meeting with growers, trying to be on the land, understand their operations, what their goals are, and then try to integrate a lot of the conservation principles and practices that have helped really grow soil health on a lot of our larger scale commodity crop operations, but adjust those to a smaller scale or diversified farming systems. It's really about meeting people where they are and understanding what kind of suite of conservation practices is going to work with them, understanding the context and goals of that farm. So that could look like supporting with thinking about different kinds of cover cropping strategies or reduced tillage depending on the scale, whether they're using hand tools or whether they have a walk-behind tractor or a little bit larger scale. Those are some of the kinds of things that we work on. If I can, I'll just add that having urban um, soil and NRCS uh, and extension folks who are starting to really um, tailor their support to small farmers is huge because most young farmers, um, I'm actually, I'm sort of a, a bit of a nerd and I'm peeking right now at the National Young Farmers um, 2022 um, national report. So every five years ahead of the farm bill, they do a big census of beginning farmers nationwide. And so I think they, they um, surveyed something like 5,000 beginning farmers um, for this report across the country, including Indiana, 83% um, list conservation or regenerative agriculture as one of their primary purposes for farming. That's really significant. And that means that people are eager for this sort of knowledge and guidance. Um, they want to be caring for the land. I don't think any farmer is in it for the money uh, any of us, <laughs> at any scale or growing any crop, but especially small farmers and especially beginning farmers um, are really having a very robust conversation about how their practices can not only contribute to the food supply, but also to bringing health and resilience to the land. I definitely want to get more into what those conservation practices are and what soil health on the small farms are looking at. But Ellie, you used a phrase I really liked where you said, we're meeting people where they are. So Liz and Ellie, I'd be interested in hearing from you. What's the picture of who's getting into farming look like and what are they growing? That's a great question because it's so different than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So the average beginning farmer is not from a farm family. Some of us are, um, but the majority are more like my husband um, who grew up in Franklin, Indiana, in town. His mom was his nurse. His dad was a professor. And he realized when getting a degree uh, that he really wanted to do something tangible with his hands and positive for his community. And um, and that's true of a lot of beginning farmers. Most are not from farm families. Most have an advanced degree and most have a community minded component to their business. So these are still for profit farms, but they're growing a wide diversity of crops for a bigger range of reasons, I think. Um, so lots of fruits and veggies, lots of small livestock. So poultry, pigs, sheep, but also cattle. 
oftentimes some small grains, a lot of flowers, a lot of bees. So a real diversity of food crops, adding in more all the time, things like mushrooms. And maybe another key component of this, as you sort of picture it, is that um, the farming season is often year round. Um, right. So if we're farming for a living, we need income all the months of the year. Um, and the nice thing about selling direct to consumer is that people want to eat all the months of the year. And so, we, um, you know, we can have income stream throughout the year um, if we're adding what we're adding to what we're growing. So that's pretty easy for me as a livestock farmer. Right. That means I have laying hens all year and I have a giant freezer where I keep my meat. But for my veggie farmer friends, um, what they're doing is they're extending the seasons using high tunnels, growing a wider variety of crops. So it's not just, you know, as much as I love good tomatoes and cucumbers and watermelons, it's um, farmers are adding more and more that grow and store through the winter. So incredibly sweet carrots, beets, and radishes, and spinach, and kale, and all these good things that can grow in Indiana year-round. Um, more and more the veggie farmers are are growing um, with the help of um, experts like Ellie and her team, figuring out how to grow more of the year and have income more of the year and supply food to their, their Hoosier neighbors more of the year. Yeah, there is such diversity. I think what you said about adding and complementing kind of staple crops that people are growing. Uh, I've seen a lot of, you know, things like turmeric and ginger and using those in ways to then connect to other like value chains and other operations to have those maybe harvested and then processed into spices by another farmer or have paste tomatoes then processed into tomato sauce or canned. And I think it's, it's wonderful to be able to see growers finding unique ways of making those operations work for them and profitable because they're we might get into this more later, but there is a lot of really trying to be creative and work on incredibly thin margins amongst small farms. And that's not unique to small farms, but that is so important here, I think. I'm really glad you brought that up, Ellie. The, this question of profit brings up something I forgot to mention, uh, which is where the heck are people selling their food, right? So, you know, in my parents' day, they took their corn or their beans to the, to the elevator and they sold it. And I remember when we moved home, I asked them like, so what was your farm name? I don't think I've ever asked. And they were like, it, we, we didn't have a name. We just, they knew it was us and they, you know, credited or billed our account. Um, and so it's, it's a whole different ball game for small scale ag. And one piece of that is that people are selling in a lot of different ways. So I think a lot of people think of the farmer's market and that is a, a really important piece of the puzzle. Um, it's, it's often a, like a way people are dipping their toes into local food production um, because it's a really pretty low barrier to entry, especially in our small town markets. Um, you can pretty well show up and bring, you know, extras from your garden and then scale up from there. But there's a lot, there are a lot of other ways to sell local food um, here in Indiana. So we see um, beginning farmers selling to independent groceries. We see them selling to um, loads of restaurants, uh, into farm to school where they're selling into cafeterias, which is really neat. We see um, others scaling up and selling into distributors that are supplying places like colleges and universities, larger groceries. So there's an aggregation piece, too, that's happening with small farms. Um, and then food hubs are another piece of that puzzle. So these are connectors that maybe they buy my um, pork and then they handle distributing it and they take a cut. Or maybe they're just a connector. So we have value chain coordinators around the state. It's a growing network of folks whose whole job is to play matchmaker between farmers who have local food 
and larger buyers who who have a shared value. They want to support Indiana businesses. They want to buy local food, um, but they don't know how to find the farmers. And so these value chain coordinators are connecting people up. And that's really exciting to me because it means when I want to scale up a piece of my business, um, I'm going to have some help finding a market. There is one last piece, and that is that the average beginning farmer is um, a woman. And that's a really big difference um, from uh, ag generally. <laughs> so um, loads of women are getting into small-scale ag, um, and that's across um, urban and rural spaces, livestock and veggies, and, and, and. Um, it's pretty exciting to see what women are up to here in Indiana. So you were talking about the challenges of finding markets and finding these different support systems that you need whenever you're starting out. Let's shift gears and talk about some of the soil health practices and challenges in implementing some of those soil health practices. We've said before that new farmers are really interested in conservation. Let's take a deeper dive into that and look at what they want to do and what kinds of challenges they're facing in order to do those things. Yeah, the, the challenges are myriad and it's hard to know where to start, but especially in really populated and more urban un environments, um, people are trying to farm on land that is not traditional ag land. So they might in be inheriting a vacant lot or taking using that to grow food and trying to grow good food on fill dirt or soil um, that was formerly contaminated or um, in a residential area or an industrial area. And, um, and another piece of that is often not having long-term access to that land. Um, land tenure is really challenging for a lot of beginning and small farms, especially that don't have generational capital to be able to um, inherit that land or, or buy land that is like good quality up front. And, and, it's, and it's hard to invest in a property an area that you don't feel like you have long-term control over. And a lot of the soil health practices will take additional time both to learn and then also implement potentially additional costs, especially during that transition time to become comfortable with those practices. So, you know, those are just some of the, I guess, foundational challenges that I see with starting off a farm with that whole ecological soil health practice approach. You know, and another big challenge is um, just knowledge of what support is out there about soil health. So, um, you know, I was in 4-H and FFA all growing up. I, I I know this world pretty well. I was, I was raised in it, so it's easy to know this world for me, right? Um, and so I, I remember my parents going to what was then the ASCS office, right? And that is now, you know, FSA and soil and water, et cetera, Um but most people getting into farming do not have that connection because they're not from farm families. So that survey that the National Young Farmers did, they um, they really broke it down. It said that 71% of young farmers reported being unfamiliar with federal programs. That was the main barrier to participation. You know, they also talked about, you know, it takes a lot of time to apply and it takes paperwork and that applications often do during a peak production time. But those were all minor, like, you know, 40% of people said over 70% of young farmers said they weren't familiar with federal programs that could help them. On our farm, those federal programs have been key to our launch. We have had two equip contracts that have helped us convert corn and soybean land into pasture. And, and that's been 
that capital, that access to capital and expertise, right? Having Robert Zupanzik from NRCS come and be our grazing specialist and tell us like, oh, here's what you're going to plant. Here's how it, okay, let's come back and visit after you've planted. Okay, establishment's going well or it's not. These are all things I didn't know how to do, but we had support. And the majority of young farmers don't know about that or they don't feel comfortable going into those offices. And so thinking about gender and race both are a big piece of that puzzle. I've been into those offices. When we first moved home and I said what we wanted to do, people looked at me like I had a third eye, you know, like they, they didn't know what I was talking about. And that's why having urban soil um, and, and stronger ties to our, our allies in NRCS and Extension, et cetera, is really important so that people feel like they can go into those offices. They can say what they're trying to do on their small farms and not be seen as crazy for wanting to um, be implementing these soil health practices um, on a small scale. It's a big resource that is very underknown and underutilized, um, and that's a challenge that we've got to overcome for Indiana farmers to succeed. And also making sure that people know about the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, which supports this podcast. Organizations that are specialized in whatever you're growing, uh, whether that's sheep, cattle, vegetables, being able to connect with people who are involved in the same industry as you, those organizations will have the experts as well. Did you find Absolutely. it easy? Did you find it easy to find like-minded people or did you have to search for a while? Oof, we had to search. The first couple of years back were pretty lonely. Um, and, you know, we kind of prepared ourselves uh, for the fact that, okay, we're moving from Vermont to Indiana. There's going to be a lot that's different. Um, the um, We'd be in a more rural place than we were in Vermont. We'd be around not as many young people. Um, going from more of a city to um, being here in Crothersville, Indiana, um, which is a town of 1600, you know, um, we'd prepared ourselves for all that. And we were excited about that switch. What we didn't realize was that we weren't going to have farmer friends in the Northeast. There are a ton of beginning farmers. And in fact, Maine is the only state so far that has been able to reverse the average age of the farmer in their state. So there's a big conversation, right? All our farmers are getting older all across the country. The average age is going up. There's a lot of hand-wringing about it, and we're not sure how to fix it. Maine's the only place where it's going down, and there are just tons of young farmers. And um, and that was really fun to be a part of. So we moved back here, and we couldn't find these people. Like, where are they? They must be here. We were actually on a trip that um, Purdue University Extension um, was sponsoring. So they had a beginning farmer-rancher development grant. And um, that grant paid for out-of-state trips with ag professionals, so NRCS, extensions, on water, et cetera, and a farmer, a beginning farmer from that county. The trip I was on, we went to Maine and Vermont, actually. <laughs> so I already knew those areas, but it was the only trip that they were doing that was open the time of year I could get off the farm. And so I said, great, let's just go. And I met all of these wonderful other beginning farmers and people who wanted to support us. We were about halfway through that trip. Like we we're on a big tour bus driving through Maine and Vermont and touring farms and looking at restaurants and groceries that were buying local and chatting with people. And I think we all looked at each other and said, like, we need more of this. We can't just go back to not having any other young farmers around. And so Roy Ballard, actually, from Sayre and Purdue Extension, he was on that bus and he said, um, well, what can we do to support you? And that's when we started um, the conversation and, and started the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition because we really needed that sense of community. You know, farmers learn best from each other no matter what scale. I'm always going to seek out an opportunity to visit someone else's farm and I'm always going to learn something from them. So um, that's why we got started because we needed that farmer time. We needed to learn from each other and that have that behind the scenes look at each other's places. What's working, what's not, 
what soil health practices are you trying? What marketing practices are you trying? How's it going with this new endeavor? So cheer each other on and, and to learn. It's really kind of the crux of, of things for me. Kind of picking up on that, I was just at a workshop that we helped to host recently um, up in South Bend. And the most important time I think there was when people got to converse over lunch or, you know, in the in-between times. And yes, we had some content sharing and shared those practices, but it was really getting people in the right room or the same room together and then stepping back and allowing for those conversations and overheard so many, you know, side conversations. Where are you getting your compost? What are the, what are the pricing of your fertilizer what why have you switched to a different kind of fertilizer which cover crops are you using and how are you terminating them with your tomatoes or cucumbers you know just talking about those getting people together because people do get busy and you might not call people up often and so we're trying to with the urban soil health program just create more space for those kinds of learning opportunities where we are here to help host events initiate workshops and partner with other organizations like Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition and others and I think where we have those grower learning spaces but also ones that invite conservation professionals to learn alongside growers are so critical. Having our conservation staff out on the land with small farms, hearing from them, those are the best learning opportunities. Yes, we might have things to share, but the most learning happens direct from the farm and then incorporating um, those practices in our technical expertise you know, repertoire. Absolutely, Ellie. You know, this last year, Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition and um, Urban Soil and Extension and a new group that were helping start Partners in Food and Farming and Sarah, a bunch of us got together and said, we need some field days, we need in-person time. And at first we were going to host them just for, we are going to have like two half-day programs. The morning was going to be for ag professionals and the afternoon for farmers. And then we realized, yeah, but what if they all had lunch together? What if we had some cool overlap? And then we said, well, why don't we just do the whole day for everybody? And it was really beautiful. We had a whole series of these. Um, there was one focused on soil health. There was one focused on pastured poultry. And in, in each case, one big highlight was um, farmer giving a tour of their operation. And then we also had ag professionals sharing. But I think at all of them, we had just as many ag professionals as we had farmers. And there's some really neat conversation that's just so valuable. You can't replace that. One of the things that's a hot topic in those types of conversations would be equipment. A lot of the equipment we see in this region is geared toward large farms. You've got uh, planters with 24 rows and large combines, large tractors, and a lot of times the cost can be a barrier to getting that kind of equipment. And so you're often faced with using a hand tool or going into some pretty deep debt in order to get a tool that you'd really like. So can you both talk to the challenges of getting the equipment that a small farm or new farmer needs in order to be successful? Yeah, I think there is a lot of opportunity. There's a huge need for new equipment that can be used um, in, let's say, cover crop, high cover crop residue systems on a small scale. Um, there's not a whole lot of equipment to transplant through high residue or to seed through high residue on small scale if growers are predominantly using hand tools or even, you know, mid-scale diesel-powered tools, for example, <laughs> like a, a, a tractor. There's not a whole lot of um, no-till drills or transplanted vegetables, let's say. You know, grow, grow, growers are creative. They're going to make it work. 
And it doesn't, I think it doesn't always mean a higher cost because I've seen a lot of growers ditch the expensive equipment because they know how to fix hand tools or, or smaller implements. And it's not as costly, you know, as much of an upfront cost. There are a lot of small farmers that are using hand tools by choice or by scale and wouldn't necessarily want to scale up and have those more, ex- equi- more expensive equipment on the land. But there's still a lot of challenges for accessing equipment that um, might even be a high cost for that operation. So a $2,000 attachment for a walk-behind tractor is a high relative cost, even though we're talking orders of magnitude different from a large combine. And so that you know cost can be a barrier for sure, as well as just a challenge to source the kind of equipment that people want. In some ways, we're talking about apples and oranges. Um, so uh, a 20 row planter, uh, a half a million dollar combine, et cetera, um, that doesn't really enter the thinking and equation of a small scale farmer. There is equipment that is um, designed and built for small scale veggie farmers, for instance. So um, there are planters that are pulled behind, you run your tractor and they create a furrow and you've got two people on the back who are putting seedlings in and it waters them and it fertigates them and it closes the hole behind. I mean, it, there's equipment like that. And no, it's not as expensive as a combine, but it might be relative to the scale of the operation just as expensive and just as big of a hurdle. So good to talk about equipment. Um, there's also much smaller equipment, walk behind tractors like a BCS um, that has uh, attachments on the back for shaping beds and turning soil and adding compost and things like that, or hand tools. And we're talking wheelbarrows and um, push behind hose and, and you know wheel hose and things like that. All of these could be an obstacle. And so we're seeing some neat creative solutions from small farmers in Indiana. Um, There are some places in the state that have tool sharing um, where you can rent tools, borrow them, just like you do at the library for free. Um, There are plenty of farmers who um, are doing what I know is called as a farm hack. So I'm going to take a piece of equipment that was meant for X and I'm going to make it do Y. Um, And I think farmers of all uh, shapes and sizes and scales uh, like to do that. We like to tinker and and come up with solutions. And then some people just inventing things for their scale. Um, Some small farmers now have a niche where they're they're selling equipment that they have um, invented that fits the scale that they're at, that fits um, a 30-inch wide bed of carrots where you want three or five rows, or that puts compost down using your, you know, 100 horsepower tractor, and but doesn't require a wheelbarrow load after wheelbarrow load, wheelbarrow load, say that three times fast, um, because, because you're at a scale larger than, you know, hand tools, but you're not large enough to need the uh, same equipment that they need out in California. Um, so there's a lot of innovation there. The other thing I'll say is beginning farmers are creative. And um, so, for instance, when we started our farm, um, we had a beat up old pickup uh, from when I was in high school and that was all. And so for about five years, you know, we borrowed um, and rented tractors from neighbors, you know, within a four mile radius, we had four or five different tractors that were big enough to bush hog fields to pull no-till drills for planting cover crop and then pasture. The downside is, of course, you're at the whims of, are these tractors, which are all 40 to 50 years old, going to break down? (laughs) And are they, or are the people who own them going to need them? They're used a lot for haying. 
um, and bush hogging and at that scale. And so two years ago, year eight, we finally bought a tractor that wouldn't break down constantly. I think we bought a tractor in year six, <laughs> but it was more of a project than a tool. Um, and and I think that's a trajectory that a lot of small farmers can empathize with in whatever their enterprises look like. But we scrap it together and we make it work until our farm can pay for a nicer piece of equipment. That's probably every farmer's reality. Sure is. Ellie, I wanted to ask you about one of the challenges with urban ag specifically would be zoning and permitting barriers. And you had also mentioned contamination. And so I wanted to pick your brain on that before we go into the soil health discussion, because I think it'll all be related. So related to zoning and permitting, as well as contamination, what are some of the things that you're seeing farmers face with that? Yeah, so one key example that's come up a few times is related to implementing or installing a high tunnel or a greenhouse in a more urban or populated environment. And especially um, some of these growers have entered into a farm bill contract, um, such as for Equip, and been able to secure financial assistance and actually be able to overcome that huge barrier, but then are faced with a potential barrier that the area that they want to install that is not zoned for being able to put up the high tunnel or that there's a perceived barrier. So there is a real need for education that comes into play with working with our zoning boards and our officials because if you actually go to the zoning code, then there might be allowances. Or if you educate on the fact that these high tunnels are not permanent structures, even though you want them to be there a long time, they are technically temporary and movable structures. So they um, they wouldn't have, uh, when you look at the, the permitting process or the, the zoning barrier there, once you're able to educate on the temporary nature of those, then there isn't an issue. Not saying that very well, but like often through education, you can overcome some of those barriers, but having access to that right language, having access to the time to then go to the code, work with the zoning board, and then whose responsibility is that? That usually comes down to the grower. It's not NRCS's hat to um, be able to overcome that coordination, but they are a key piece of it. So if you have a district conservationist that's willing to you know, provide some of those key pieces of information, that grower is more equipped to um, be able to grow how they want to grow. Yes, Ali, you know, you, I think you hit the nail on the head there that oftentimes things like putting up a high tunnel are totally um, fine, but the burden falls on the farmer to, to show that. Um, and and if, they, if we can equip them with the knowledge and the language around that, they're ready from the start, um, as opposed to them having to dig through zoning law. And I mean, we're here to farm, we're not here to be legalese uh, interpreters. And so... The the other thing that happens in urban spaces, and maybe you already mentioned this, was um, tenure. So often people are farming on land that the the city might give them permission to farm on. But that means usually that they're on a year-to-year contract or lease or agreement. If you want any, any sort of federal funding or if you want to apply for, often if you want to apply for a grant, because some um, urban and rural farms are choosing to go a nonprofit route. Maybe they have a real... Um, not just a heart for community, but also a specific mission where they're um, giving away a lot of the food they grow or they're bringing kids onto the farm for educational events that are free or things like that. If they want to apply for grants, they have to show that they're going to be on that property for the three-year grant period. And many times cities won't give that permission because they want to, you know, they want to keep their options open. And so figuring out how to deal with zoning and land tenure um, 
it's a big hurdle no matter what they're doing, but especially in regards to these longer term questions of season extension and soil health. I've definitely seen and had customers be really upset about their cover crops being mowed down by the city because of height restrictions for their lawn. Those are sad days. So um, there's definitely opportunities for more education and collaboration with city officials. And um, there are some avenues and policy templates being created for, let's say, urban agricultural zones. There has been a, a framework or an avenue adopted here in Indiana, but as of yet, I haven't seen any municipalities take that up. So look forward in uh, future years to potentially urban ag zones where there is tax abatement for zone uh, ag spaces for some of our, our agricultural urban ag partners. You know, when I started paying attention to this, because I'm, I'm a rural farmer uh, and I am still learning about urban farming issues, um, I started paying attention to this because Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition um, teamed up with SWCD and SARE and Extension to interview a bunch of farmers during COVID about what was working and what wasn't. And we turned it into this like four-part video series. And one of them is called Dear Ag Professional. Um, and it's where farmers are just saying like what they wish the folks like us who are trying to serve farmers knew and understood. And in that, one of the farmers, a woman named Danielle Guerin, she talked about zoning um, and the impact it has on her urban farm and Indianapolis, that really opened my eyes. And so if there are folks out there listening who want to learn more about um, small-scale farmers and the obstacles they face and the opportunities that they're grabbing and taking advantage of in, in improving their communities, um, that's all free. It's on the YouTubes. Um, just go to the Indiana SARE site and you'll find that and you'll be able to hear from a lot more farmers. Awesome. I also wanted to know about the contamination issue because that could lead right into our soil health practices. What kinds of things are you seeing in urban settings where land may be contaminated from a previous use? And then what are some conservation practices that make an impact on that land and others? Yeah, wonderful question. There's a lot of different sources of contamination, and primarily I'll highlight lead contamination. That's uh, the, the primary heavy metal that is a legacy toxin in our soils that has an enormous impact on uh, lifetime outcomes, especially for youth that are exposed to lead early in childhood. And so as urban farming and working with soils that could be contaminated has only increased, there is a lot of hesitation and lack of information, let's say, about that site history and a lot of hesitation from growers for what they may face. You know, a lot of people do not want to put kids at risk, do not want to put themselves at risk, rightly so. There is some fear that can be easily resolved by doing a soil test and understanding that there is not lead present in that soil at a level of concern for who's going to be working with that site or that you can work on lead contaminated sites at low levels and crops are not typically taking up that lead into their uh, crop tissues. So there's a lot of ways to, I guess, still in a healthy and safe way, interact with sites that may have some legacy of contamination, of course, depending on the contaminant. So again, soil testing is like the first route. And then there is a lot of wonderful overlap and intersection with soil health practices, which I really appreciate because a main vector for exposure to lead contamination is through dust particles that are floating in the air and are inhaled and ingested. 
And so if we can keep that soil covered either with living roots, living plant material, or with wood chips, or um, even synthetic barriers, that is one of the primary steps to reducing exposure. Then there's a lot of emerging science on how adding organic matter and moderating pH, having about neutral pH in our soils, actually changes the chemistry of lead, like making it less mobile in our soils and uh, less possible for crops to uptake lead as well as for it to be a human health concern. So that's that's really cool. But there there are real concerns uh, for using formerly contaminated sites. And so I guess another first step that we recommend is for doing site history investigations, looking at items, virtual file cabinet, it's now called Map My Environment, that has a lot of um, information on what that former use of that land could be. So you understand what could be a concern in, the, in those sites. What are some of the conservation practices that you've seen are working for small and beginning farmers around the state and some of the practices that you're using on your own farm? That's a great question. Let's start with um, the livestock end of it. The exciting thing for me about conservation practices related to livestock is that they're um, really scalable. So we see a lot of people taking fields out of annual crop production, doing maybe a year of cover crops. That's what we did on our place. We did a year uh, spring planting of a diverse mix, um, five or more species, and then we terminated that crop, mowed it all down, and then drilled in a fall crop. So it was a way to quickly get some organic matter into the soil and some cover onto the top of the soil. And then we planted in our perennial pasture. And we've got a really diverse mix of things growing out in the pasture. So alfalfa and timothy um, and fescue and three different types of clover, etc. And so diversity is one big piece of it. Ground cover is a big piece of it. Um, but other things we're seeing people do in relation to livestock, um, one that's pretty new and exciting and is funded by Equip now, um, it's called silvopasture. So this is planting trees into your pasture in a really intentional way. And the goal could be for shade, right? Because with climate change, Indiana summers are just getting hotter and, and more extreme heat. Um, and so having shade in every paddock goes a long way. So people are planting in fruit and nut trees. They're planting in native species. Um, we've planted about a thousand um, trees into our pastures in, in different rows to create shade um, here on our farm. And then another, I mean, maybe the key to all of this um, is rotational grazing. So instead of the animals staying in one spot the whole time, you take a pasture, let's say it's eight acres, and you subdivide it into maybe 10 or more paddocks, depends on the animal group and what how many you have, and you move them around from one place to the next. And you, if you just grazed paddock A and you moved them to paddock B, you don't go back to paddock A for maybe 30 days, maybe 60 days, depends on the time of year and how quickly that grass is regrowing. And importantly, you leave um, growth behind. And so you leave um, minimum three or four inches and that lets the plant keep enough living roots that it can rebound really quickly. What we're doing there that I think is exciting and that um, beginning farmers identify as exciting is that we're sequestering carbon. So this is a way we can fight climate change. It's a way we can improve our soils. So on our farm, I said we have really heavy clay soils. When we started and it would rain, I mean, that there would just be puddles. The whole field would be a puddle. Um, and I'm not saying it's magically fixed now. Um, we st we're still wet. <laughs> um, we're right by the Muscatatuck River we sit wet, it's clay soil, that is the fact. Those are the facts, right? But rain infiltration rates have gotten better. Um, we can handle intense rain events um, more and have the animals out grazing more of the year because of our soil health practices. On the veggie end of things, 
I'm going to out myself and say that this is not my area of expertise, um, but I've been learning from my veggie farmer friends and, and you know, for Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition, we do a lot of farm tours and potlucks on farms. And so I keep trying to pick up new tricks um, that I implement in our just our family garden. But the things I see consistently on beginning farmers places in terms of soil health are ground cover. So whether that's mulch, um, in some cases, it's a, a plastic or a, some sort of fabric, whether that's a cover crop. I'm seeing more and more of my veggie farmer friends have a cover crop that they grow and then they um, crimp it just like some of the corn and soybean folks are doing roller crimpers and then planting directly into that. You can do that with small-scale diversified veggies also. Adding compost to the land, partnering with a livestock farmer to get that compost. We actually have three acres that we rent out to um, Wild Pansy Farm, which is a veggie and um, flower operation. And they get all of our spent bedding from our brooders, from winter um, with the sheep, and then they're composting it out in the field, and then they're putting it on their beds. So those collaborations are really rich and ripe for harvest. What else am I seeing people do? Certainly season extension is a part of that because they're caring really intensely for those places where they're raising high tunnels and they've got roots growing in the ground more of the year, which is really exciting. And it means I can eat more vegetables for more of the year because my veggie farmer friends have more to sell at the farmer's market um, all year round. Um, Let's see, uh, Ellie, what else are you seeing? Yeah, you hit a lot of the hot topics. I think um, cover crops and integrating that into vegetable systems, that is a real challenge because as you mentioned, a lot of growers are trying to grow year round, 12 months of the year. And a lot of our cover crops are typically planted in around August to September, like prime harvest and still growing time. And so it can be a challenge to integrate cover crops into really intensive systems, but I'm seeing it more and more. And there's a lot of cross collaboration on how to make those systems work efficiently while still having good yields, while building soil health as well. So especially in organic operations, ways to use crimping or even flail mowing and uh, tarping. If you're you're not a small farm or if you're a small farm and you don't have a tarp, I think it's a, a real critical piece of equipment that is pretty low cost and can really up the game in terms of both soil health, being able mm-hmm. to terminate cover crops and also turn beds over to another plant harvestable crop. Yeah. So in case you are not a small farmer and you're listening, when Ellie says tarp, she does not mean the like 12 foot by 16 foot tarp at Home Depot necessarily. They can be small, but often what we see people using is silage tarps. Um, And maybe they use them at the full size. Maybe they cut them into smaller bits depending on how they're growing. But it's been really neat to see um, how farmers or beginning farmers especially seem to be using these as ways to have beds ready right at the start of the season. So they'll have them on a bed over the winter so or a series of beds, 530 inch by 100 foot beds, let's say. And then they've got control over warming that soil a little earlier in the year, making sure that it's relatively weed free and they're ready to grow early in the year. It's a pretty neat tool and pretty low cost, like you said. Liz, I'm glad you clarified that because I did have that blue 12 by 16 tarp in my mind whenever she said that. So thank you for explaining uh, what that was. Yes, thank you. I, I get caught in just, you know, rattling things off. But yeah, um, the, the key importance there is preventing light from reaching the ground. And, and that material can be used year after year without UV degradation. You can purchase them on some of your ag supply stores or try to find somebody that in your local community that's getting rid of one. Yeah, that is also, those tarps are used for prepping new ground a lot and doing so in a way that can reduce disturbance. Yeah, that's a great point, Ellie. People put them on a place that's got, you know, grass, sod, or whatever might have been growing there before. And um, you leave them on ideally during the hot part of the year 
right, for multiple weeks, and that kills what's below, um, but you didn't need chemicals, and you can reuse that that silage tarp. Or we've seen people get in touch with, uh, like, marketing firms and get billboard, I don't know, whatever you call the plastic that's on billboards. You can use the back side of it, basically, as your black plastic. A couple of other key conservation practices that I'm seeing on small farms are the establishment of permanent bed systems. A lot of larger market scale or intensive vegetable production farms have these systems, but I'm even seeing backyards, other community gardens go to the style of growing food, whereby it reduces compaction to walkways and can really target conservation practices happening on those raised beds, not constructed raised beds, but permanent in-ground growing beds and really target a lot of the cover cropping, mulching, irrigation in those particular beds and reduce the amount of soil disturbance happening on the whole farm to those particular beds. It's really exciting also to see a lot of growers transitioning from, let's say, heavy tillage to a reduced tillage regime. There's a lot of implements on a small farm that can be used for that. Some of the different attachments for a walk-behind tractor that we talked about, a power harrow that can set the depth at a really shallow level of disturbance, and then even a broad fork, which helps to reduce compaction without killing earthworms' homes. (laughs) So uh, talking about um, that tarp and people being creative brings us back around to the small farmers and newer farmers being creative and we've talked about creativity throughout this whole session and how people are meeting challenges, what those challenges are, how we can connect with other people and have those conversations about what we're doing and um, sharing our innovative ways. And as we start to wrap up our conversation, I wanted to ask, what would be your number one takeaway for someone who is looking to get into farming, or maybe they just started and they want to learn more about soil health or connect with people who are have the same soil health mindset that they do? I would say, thank goodness we can have in-person events again, that the the world is a a healthier place um, and we can be outside together. Um, So I would say um, find a field day. Um, There will be, you know, dozens of them probably over the next 12 months. Um, The Urban Soil website will point you to them. The Hoosier Young Farmers website will point you to them. And almost all of these are free and their chances to learn alongside other farmers and ag professionals who care about care about the land and, and who are thinking on this scale, um, small-scale diversified farms. There's bound to be an event somewhere near you um, in 2023, and we hope we'll see you there. You beat me to it. That was going to be my recommendation as well. The other thing I would add is to go into your local soil and water conservation district office or call them or send them an email. Hearing from you that you're interested in these topics is what will help motivate us to continue to do these kinds of planning workshops and events and help bridge those gaps. Because I hear from a lot of conservation districts, I don't know where to find farmers, small farmers in my community. I'm not hearing that this is a big need. Connections and communications need to happen both ways. Find a way to reach out and share what your needs are. And hopefully there's an event or a person that can come out and support you. Ali, how would someone find out who their local representative is? Yes. So you can search for Indiana Soil and Water Conservation District and find who your contact point is. 
Almost every district has their own website, but contact the IASWCD. It's a wicked acronym, I know. It's a long one. But contact the IASWCD if you need help finding your local district. There's one in every county. And then if you'll want to get in touch with the NRCS, you can also find them through the Indiana website. Liz, where do you go to find more information about Hoosier Young Farmers? So we're on the the social medias. So find us on Facebook or on Instagram or on our website, which is Hoosier YFC, Hoosier Young Farmer Coalition, HoosierYFC.org. And you'll find all the events listed and how to get in touch. Um, We have a a classifieds board um, where people can list equipment for sale or land for sale or job opportunities, things like that. It's a really neat connection point um, that we're trying to provide for beginning farmers out there who are are getting started in Indiana. Liz and Deli, thank you so much for joining us on this edition of the Hat Soil Health Podcast. I learned a lot and I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Elise. This episode of the Hat Soil Health Podcast was supported by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. You can learn more about their efforts and see a schedule of events at ccsin.org. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, create your riches below the surface with healthy soil.